I'm Katherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. We're winding down season two with just a few episodes left. We'll be back with season three in January with more episodes to challenge the church to do better, including the voices of artists, survivors, and professionals to help us have these conversations. In the meantime, I'd really love your help with something. I'm placing a link in the show notes with a few questions for you. I'd love to hear what sorts of topics you'd like to hear covered in Season 3, as well as any guests you'd be interested in hearing from. This is a collaborative community, and your input is always welcome. In this forum, I'd also love to hear how the podcast is resonating with you and which episodes you've found the most helpful. Go ahead and check that out in the show notes. The date for our virtual gala is November 6th. This is an opportunity for you to learn more about the nonprofit Tears of Eden, a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. We can't wait to share the stories of survivors and talk about our hopes and dreams for this organization. Today's guest is Kim Gower, a dancing professional who is studying how dance can help people navigate trauma. And I think that's what allows people to feel safe because, and I think for me as a child, like verbally communicating to someone I didn't know was really scary, but somehow communicating what I wanted to say through a movement felt safer to me. I think you'll find it really interesting. We also discussed purity culture and asked the question, why does the church seem to fear the body so much? Here's my interview with Kim Gower. I'm Catherine here with my friend Kim, who is a professional dance teacher, and I am excited to talk to you about dance and trauma and the work that you have been doing with that, but first of all, I would love to just hear how you got started in dance and what that journey looked like for you. Uh, Well, thanks, Catherine, and I'm really excited to talk to you and excited to be on your podcast I've been listening to it this summer and I feel like you're doing some really great work so thank you loving listening to some of the episodes but as for me I started dancing when I was three so I've danced my entire life Um, my mom always jokes that like she couldn't keep me still so she was like I gotta do something <laughs> <laughs> you just, like dance down dancer, like grocery, dancer. <laughs> grocery store uh aisles were the best place to dance and that was not fun for my mom so <laughs> got put in dance class uh and also as a child I was extremely extremely shy um not necessarily with my family uh but in the public light and anyone that was not family I was painfully shy a lot of anxiety with that and so dance was always like this safe place for me it was I don't know like my way of being able to communicate and feeling I always felt confident like I was fine getting on stage and performing but speaking speaking to people would be scary but I would be fine getting on stage and dancing wow and And I would spend hours, like, I remember this as a kid, like, my parents had this little area of our basement set up to practice dance, and I would spend hours down there just dancing, like, I would put on music, just, like, improv. Like, it wasn't even, like, I was doing specific For hours and hours. Hours, and I would 
choreographed dances. Like I have all these old notebooks where I would like write down, like draw pictures of wow. choreography. It's pretty funny. But yeah, so it was just like my, yeah, that's what I kind of call it, like my safe place. It's like what brought me joy. And as I grew up, I really loved ballet. So that was my style. I did a lot of like intensive training, um, wanted to be a ballerina. I wanted to go to Juilliard and, you know, dance up yes. in New York and all that good stuff. And it's probably around middle school that I was like, this is too much. Like it started to become that really, what you probably picture when you think of ball- ballerinas, right? Like the really intense structure of like pressure put on your body and your, you know, self-image and all that stuff. And uh. it just, it just started to feel really, um, yeah, like stressful. And I just remember like one day, like being in the car on the way to dance and like, not wanting to go mm. and that like really worrying me because I knew how much I loved dance and I didn't want to not find that joy anymore mm-hmm. um so when I got into high school I kind of pulled back I still danced but I started doing uh in high school theater and musical theater which loved um and also helped me with a lot of the confidence building and breaking me out of my shell and yeah since then I've just continued went to college for dance uh, and it was in college that I really, you know, I feel like even growing up, like when I was doing all that pre-professional training, like I knew that there was something more to dance than just performing. Like there was something right. like a deeper, a deeper purpose. Cause it really did help me. You know, when I said I was shy when I was little, it's like, now I have no problem getting in front of a room full of people talking. Wow. Like I could happily walk up to someone at a party and introduce myself and you know I always laugh that like five-year-old Kim would freak out over that but mm-hmm. I'm okay so I really do credit that to dance and also you know a lot of theater and musical theater in high school as well um but in college yeah that like sense of like there's a deeper purpose to dance yeah than you know just being on stage and even yeah. though performance is important like we need that for the arts for me I felt like there was something deeper um And so in college, we did a lot of outreach as a dance program, and we would go into nursing homes and elementary schools. That's where I was like, I really want to teach. That's really cool. Yeah. And, you know, I just started to see, I was like, ooh, there is something more to dance than just the traditional styles of what I've learned. And then I came to D.C. after graduation, lived here for a few years, did, I call it my starving artist years, where I, like, ate a lot of ramen and cups and noodle and, you know... (laughs) Tried to pay the bills by like teaching at random jobs. And one of the jobs I did was we would go into the public schools here in DC and teach. Um, it was through a dance company here in DC. And again, it was very eye opening. I saw the states of the school. I did not realize I grew up in the DC area, but I didn't, you know, I was not aware of how, um, how much inequity there was within, uh, between schools, right? Like, yeah. And how much they lack the arts, uh, in general like like every school well and not and that was the other thing it's like we would go to a school in like a really nice neighborhood in dc and it would be fine and then we would go to a school like what five miles away in southeast and it would be awful and like no arts programming like that was like the lack of the lack of like the first thing to go basically yes like or wasn't a priority yeah in education the arts are always the first to get cut and specifically dance and theater we joke that we're the stepchildren of the arts like we're always kind of like on the back burner and like the first to be cut Um, right which is sad because we don't need much right like for dance like i just need a room 
and a speaker. Exactly. <laughs> um, and theater too. It could be it can yeah. be minimal. Right. Like you can use more, right? Like if you're doing a show, but right. um just right. to teach class you don't need too much. Um and so seeing that and then also seeing how like thirsty the kids were for the arts, like oh, how excited they were. That breaks my um, heart. And I remember in particular this one school, it's right before I ended up going to grad school in New York for education. And before I left, the last class I had, I had them write like an end of the year reflection. And I remember this one girl was in a really, really rough neighborhood. And she just wrote about how like, you know, it would there were days that it was hard to come to school. Like she was uh. really upset or stressed or some you know, stuff was going on. But when she came to dance, she felt safe. And it was, like, her place where she could, like, let go of whatever was going on at home, whatever was going on outside. And I just – I've kept that essay that she wrote. It's, like, one of my little reminders that I pull out right. every once in a while when I do it. And, you know, I think that was, like, what really drove me into education. Um, so I went to grad school to get my master's, and then I came back to D.C. And so I've been teaching in D.C. ever since. And um, – well. Minus my few years in L.A. Right. <laughs> Minus the, um, the three or so years yeah. in which we met and reconnected, even though we Yay. went to the same church in D.C. In D.C. Yes. <laughs> and at NYU, I forgot to mention this. We One of the pivotal moments, I think, in my dance journey was while I was at NYU, we had a study abroad trip to Uganda. Um, and it was this amazing collaborative exchange like we worked with the university students in Kapala uh we took classes with them and then the main focus of the trip was we went um into different orphanages and child centers and um IDP camps which is internally displaced people's camp um and worked with children who had been affected by the civil war so many of them were ex-child soldiers and oh my god um, were orphaned by the war and it was again like very trans, like the, uh, many things on that trip were very transformative for me. But there was this one moment that is like seared in my memory. It's like my moment where I was like, "This is what I want." Like this is what that nagging question of "There's a deeper purpose to dance." What is it? Like this is when it was answered. And we were at this one center, um, and the children were just dancing. It was kind of like dance party, you know. Like they were just having fun, and there was this one boy in particular, and. Like, Catherine, I swear, like, I remember watching him dance, and it was just, like, watching Joy personified. That's how I describe Whoa. it. Like, he was just so, like, I can still picture him, like, exactly in my mind. Like, his smile, his energy. It's like you could just, like, feel the joy um, of him when he was dancing. And then as he turned, I noticed that he had this big wound in the back of his head. And um, wow. I asked a worker at the center I was like what's his story you know what happened and she told me that he had been um a child soldier he had been orphaned by the war and then that was a machete wound oh in his head and she gosh. didn't tell me the details or anything but I mean like I feel like if you have a machete wound in the back of your head you've been through trauma exactly. um and I can't even imagine the trauma you know and so right. to just watch him and to see him be able to dance with so much joy despite what he had been through right it was just this moment of like this is what dance can do like movement has such a deeper purpose for and sure a powerful purpose yeah um wow and, yeah and that's when I went back to grad school like that was you know over a semester break and we did our graduate thesis and I focused my thesis on um dance and trauma and so 
I'm not licensed. Like I'm not a licensed dance movement therapist at all. I've taken a few courses and workshops and read a lot of books and research, but I consider myself like a student of that, but like taking the ideas of dance movement therapy and like integrating them into education, right? Like integrating them into like my dance class with kids, especially because I've always worked in very high at risk neighborhoods with kids with then you've seen it you've seen what it can do i've also done um in addition to the work in dc i've done a lot of work overseas with refugees in the middle east and that's been really incredible um just to watch dance being used especially when you don't speak the same language oh it is a universal language it really is probably more than any other art form Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't language. need any words. Yeah. Whoa, that's amazing. I feel like there's a there's a theme on the Uncertain podcast. There's there's been some people who are like like specialized, like a psychiatrist or a journalist or whatever. But I feel like there's a there's a lot of people on, that are guests on the Uncertain podcast that um, have kind of like made their own thing. And so like you taking some dance movement therapy and then your education and then your love of dance and kind of blending it together into this really cool thing. I I think that's awesome. And I wanted to rewind a little bit because mm-hmm. all the way back to the beginning when you had said <laughs> that dance helped you feel safe and then you could go on stage and you could dance and you wouldn't get nervous. And I feel like that's a pretty common theme with dancers when I hear about mm-hmm. how they got started as a dancer what do you think it is about dance? And it may be connected to the same thing of like getting into your body when you've experienced trauma. Mm-hmm. What do you think it is about dance that helps people feel that way? Well, I think I remember reading when I did my research for my thesis, I remember reading this um, one journal article and the researcher made this statement that dance is our innate form of communication and how she shared this story about a baby being born and how when a baby is born, the first thing it does is cry. But before it cries, what does it have to do? They have to take a breath and breath is movement. So our first form of communication, our most natural form of communication is movement. And when you're in the womb, right, when a baby's in the womb, it can't talk, but it can move. And so I think and a lot of dance movement therapists, like the original dance movement therapist, uh, Marianne Chase, I believe her name was, I think she originally called her course Dance for Communication because dance is the way movement, and I like to just use the word movement because sometimes when you use dance, people get like stereotypes about it. But right. movement is just our natural form of communication. And I think that's what allows people to feel safe because, and I think for me as a child, like, verbally communicating to someone I didn't know was really scary but somehow communicating what I wanted to say through a movement felt safer to me wow I don't know and I think I think there is truth in that right like that's how humans initially communicated is it possible that it's in that movement without words you are basically your true self mm, yeah I guess, yeah well, and there are people, I remember this in my research too, they call it authentic movement. You're most, you know, you are your authentic self when you move. Whoa. So, and I can, and a lot of dance movement therapists, I don't know too much about this. I remember hearing about this in my courses, but a lot of their, uh, 
dance movement therapists, when they watch their patients, they will watch them move and then they allow that. And sometimes it's just pedestrian movement, like walking. And they watch that and they use that as like an assessment tool to like plan treatment and diagnose and all that. And Whoa. I think that's fascinating. I don't know too much about that. I never learned right. all the details of that, but I think that's fascinating. Like you can just watch someone walk and that can help you realize what is going on in the body and the brain. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, and that makes sense with just things like posture and like people who feel uh, less confident, less safe, usually have a more like uh, concave posture where they're like mm. leaning over. And then someone who is more confident tends to stand up straighter, lift their head up higher. And just even that little bit of movement, I feel like can say a lot about people and yeah. who they are. Where have you, exactly. since we have uh, mentioned the fact that we met at church, um, where have you seen faith show up in your art and artistry? I mean, I think as a dancer, sometimes as a Christian and a dancer, it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's There's been, I don't, and I will say I was pretty sheltered growing up. My parents were always really supportive of dance, and they're both very strong in their faith, and they never, you know, questioned my love of dance or questioned my faith in it. But it was probably like when I started getting older, like in high school and college and started meeting different faith perspectives, just kind of the negative connotations about being a dancer yeah. and also being a Christian. And to me, I mean, I will say as a Christian, when I watch dance, like when I think about the body and what the body can do, how the body can evoke meaning and communicate and just like the capabilities of the body, right? Like mm-hmm. the athleticism and the artistry to me it points me to god it like makes me think of god as the creator and god so when i use my body to me it's like glorifying god but then i have been told by people in the church that in i that's not the case right like it could be not glorifying god and like glorifying the body instead so i think it there has been tension within Being a Christian and being a dancer, I get excited when I meet other artists in the church. Um, I think a lot of us have very similar storylines and, you know, like experiences. I remember, I think a few months ago, you had a dancer on your podcast. Yes, Jamie. Yes. And I remember she talked about some of this stuff and I was just like, a lot of what she said, I was like, yep, yep. Yeah. (laughs) There's a fear of the body in the church. Yes. Right. What do you think that is? Where do you think that comes from? I don't know. Like, I mean, I think there's definitely, like, a stigma, too. Like, if you move a certain way, it could be, like, sexualized. And I don't necessarily think that's the case, right? Like, mm, yeah. Um, like, for example, I'll give you a story. It's kind of silly, but whatever. Um, I always laugh whenever I meet guys in the church and they find out I'm a dancer. And they're like, oh, do you love swing dancing? And I always laugh because that's, like, such what? a thing in the church. I don't what? know why swing dancing is so big. I actually, like, <laughs> I've done swing dancing. And no hate to swing dancing. But, like, I personally don't really like it that much. But I love salsa dancing. And so I'll say that sometimes. And guys will kind of be like, oh, oh, oh. And, like, they kind of freak out. And I'm like, oh, because you think it's, like sexual and sensual exactly. and you're moving your hips and you're right. like, very close and um, yeah whereas, like if you actually go to those cultures like when I was in Venezuela back in college I remember like dance is such a part of their culture and it's such a part of who they are and it's how they you know build community and socialize and it doesn't have to be a sexual thing right like you right. dance with people and it's just fun and like exactly. you dance with different people and there's no like 
barrier. And so it's just interesting. I think maybe some of it is, I don't want to say ignorance, but like lack of like knowing and like experiencing things and yeah. And maybe just passed down through generations and potentially I wonder how, I mean, I'm sure there's a a link to purity culture there too, where Mm. anything that might potentially be tempting or, or drawing attention to the body um, mm. could be sexual therefore it's evil and we need to yeah. separate ourselves from it but something like swing dancing it's mostly hands it's not so much touching yeah. bodies although you can do all the flips and you swing can. the girl onto your legs oh so I'm yeah just, like, you totally can I mean I don't know Catherine I'm ready to meet a Christian guy that likes salsa dancing and not swing dancing <laughs> <laughs> and salsa dancing is fun man it's so much fun mm-hmm. um but yeah, I think you're. I think you're right. If there is like a link to the purity culture in there, I mm-hmm. can see that. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. I know that there was just. I worked at a church. It was a. It was a Presbyterian church. It wasn't even a Baptist church. But there were just so many weird things about dance party. And I remember, uh, like, I don't think my boss told me like, don't tell people that you have a dance party after youth group. <laughs> But it was kind of just like he was okay with it, but just keep that one under wraps. And uh, it's just like youth dancing, you know, like goofing it's just off. Dancing. And you and we did it every every Wednesday night. We'd turn on the music, we'd be cleaning up, and we'd just have a dance party. And um, you know what? That probably <laughs> bonded you all. And you oh, all for sure. You had a great community because dancing brings people together. And probably more spiritual than any sermon we mm-hmm. ever had, honestly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So kind of on the lines of how you've experienced artist healing, I would love to hear just more about what you've learned about dance and trauma with your work with the refugees. And and then that's kind of like what you're looking at studying, right? If you pursue more education. Yes. Like I'm considering if I ever go for a doctorate or even just another degree, um, doing more research on this because I think it's fascinating and I love it. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, like dance movement therapy is just such a fascinating tool. You know, mm-hmm. it's you know, I describe it to people like it's the focus is on the body, but then the vehicle that dance movement therapist is movement. That's the vehicle it'll use. So it's that's kind of like a basic definition of it. And kind of like ways that I integrate it into my own teaching and how I use it. So what I mentioned earlier, like dance as communication, that's like a big thing for me. Like what I mentioned about the baby and how it's our innate form of communication and it's more natural and a lot of people who have been through trauma tend to be nonverbal maybe not like completely nonverbal but they might especially when it comes to talking about what they've been through or their experiences it's really hard to verbalize and process that verbally um yeah so the idea is like you know if you can connect nonverbally and allow someone to tell their story nonverbally it may slowly allow them to open up and feel more comfortable talking about it and processing it verbally. And so that's one thing I think about a lot. And I do a lot of that um, in my classroom, just like dance as expression. So like just allowing them, I do a lot of improv. So sometimes I do guided improv where it's something kind of like what you were saying earlier about posture, but I tell them to make a shape in their body that represents how they're feeling. Oh. And it's actually really great for me as a teacher because I get like a temperature check. I'm like, oh, there's a lot of people who are tired or sad or they feel happy today or whatever. And then I'll put music on and I'm like, dance how you feel. Like that's 
an example of like an improv I do. And that's cool. I'll just do that for like five minutes. Right. And then we move on to our lesson. But what a uh, fun class. It's it's fun. I like it. Too. You know, you could like switch up the music and put the music towards how they're feeling too and talk about how music represents feelings as well. Um, and then also, I mean, so simple activities like that versus like big projects where I've had students share stories through movement and, uh, you know, I do a lot of journaling and reflection, especially when I used to teach middle school, uh, where they would journal and then turn that journaling into movement. Um, and so it could be anything from like a simple activity to a more structured, you know, project. Um, I feel like then, I want to do this for myself. It's such a great like thing improv I mean, for myself and just like, like dance it out. That's what I say is like, yeah, dance, dance it out. <laughs> oh, it sounds like so much fun. And then the second thing I always think about is, so you've probably heard of like mind body connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and for those that might not know, it's the idea of like how your mind and your body are connected. And uh, there's a part of your brain called the limbic system, which is, you know, when you are in danger, it's the part that initiates that fight, flight, or freeze um, mm-hmm. mentality. And so when I teach kids this, I talk about how that's your downstairs brain. And when your downstairs brain is on, you react. And sometimes you're not thinking clearly and you're very emotional. Mm-hmm. But then there's your upstairs brain. And your upstairs brain is your higher functioning section of your brain, right? It's the part of your brain that can reason and think and regulate. And so when a person who has been traumatized is triggered. So if you think about, I don't know, a military vet, right? If they hear fireworks, sometimes that can trigger them. They become escalated and they can live in that downstairs brain and they can Mm. act in a way that's not healthy and it can harm themselves or harm others. Or they can also like go into, you know, it's fight, flight or freeze and freeze is when they shut down. So if you've ever seen Mm -hmm. someone like completely shut down, Um, And so the idea is, like, we want to get someone when they're in that activated place to go back up to the upstairs brain. So I explain this with my kids, like, the downstairs, upstairs brain, which one is in control. And I allow, like, I have this one section of my room. And a lot of teachers do this now. They call it, like, their calm down corner where they have a section of their room where kids can go take a break for a certain amount of time. And teachers might use a variety of different activities like coloring or you know, there's all these like sensory things now, like Ooh. kinetic sand. And yeah. And so when I do it, I focus on movement activities just because it's dance class. So, and I let kids choose. I tell them, I'm like, you know, sometimes you might need to do something calming, like yoga or stretches. Mm-hmm. Um, other times you might need to dance it out and like, you know, do some like, or do like a hit workout, right? Like do some jumping jacks and some burpees or some like kickboxing jabs, you know? And so I have <laughs> all these like <laughs> visuals set up for them and, you know, this year I also wanted, I have this idea of like getting some headphones and connecting it to music and letting them have like a little silent disco party if they oh, need to. Oh, nice. Um, and it's time, you know, they have a certain amount of time there. And then when the timer goes off, they have to take four, you know, breathing strategies that I teach them before they come back in. So even if they're doing something high energy, because I think, you know, as people, sometimes when we're escalated you need something calm and sometimes you just need to get it out like you need mm-hmm. to do something high energy and like get out your anger or whatever you're feeling um but the breathing i think is important at the end because then it allows them their heart rate to like you know regulate and then be able to be calm again to re-enter class and so the idea of doing this is like these strategies help regulate your body so that you can 
go back to that upstairs brain thinking and you can be logical and calm. Um, And this is how you address like when someone's having maybe something that would be termed a behavioral issue in your class. And so this isn't a like punishment. They're just going and having this time to re-engage their upstairs brain. Yes. And I also tell kids that they can advocate for themselves to use it. So, like, they might know. that, hey, And can it's I really cute it? when kids, like, start to learn this. Like, I remember I had a kid once being like, Miss, I think my downstairs brain is taking control. And it's, like, so cute to hear them, like, <laughs> say it in that way. And I'm like, and they're like, I think I need a break. And I'm like, okay, you got, like, four minutes in the break corner, you know. And oh, I set nice. the timer. And so, I mean, it takes time to get there. This is not, like, a overnight thing. It's definitely, like, it takes weeks and then it kind of gives them some agency Mm -hmm. and it's teaching them right because i think the thing about trauma is that trauma will always be with you Mm -hmm. and it's never going to be like you're completely healed from it but you can learn how to cope Mm -hmm. and how like you know i mean i think that's why a lot of therapists work with people to like recognize what triggers you and then what do you do when you're triggered you know like how do you de-escalate and yeah yeah um and so I think that's teaching these kids like, oh, I'm feeling out of control right now and I need to stabilize myself. Type right. Mentality, which I think is really important, especially because like being in an education setting, right? Like not all my kids are going to be in that moment at the same time. So that's why that little area of the room is a good place to allow them yeah. to take that break. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. I mean, there's students who are still, you know, escalated and it doesn't work. And then that's when you call the therapist and (laughs) they come get the kid and they do their work. But so that's another way. And then I think the last thing I really focus on and what I got out of my research when I was studying trauma was the idea of really integrating a lot of relationship building in my classes. Mm Because someone who has been through trauma can really have a hard time trusting, you know, like anything, communicating with another individual, everything. So I implement a lot of that in my teaching, like small little activities. Like I always do like, and especially this year when we were on Zoom, like virtual teaching was tough. And especially for relationship building, I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. So I would do this thing and I do it in the classroom too, but over Zoom it worked really well. But the last like few minutes of class, I let the the kids give each other shout outs and it could be like anything. It could be like, I really like how so-and-so smiled today. Or, you know, this student was really dancing with a lot of energy. Or, you know, like, it could be anything. Like, And it's so cute to hear these kids, like, give each other affirmations and, you know, compliments. And and just that little activity, to me, is relationship building, right? Because someone who is not good at relationship building, for them to hear something positive said to them, but then also to be able to give a positive affirmation to someone... Um, I think is really powerful in learning that. And then, yeah, and then also, like, big projects, right? Like, I do a lot of, like, group work and, um, you know, choreography activities where they have to do, um, you know, projects together and choreograph dances together. And it's not always easy. It's tough, right? Like, group, mm-hmm. I mean, we all remember group projects from, like, college and high school. They're not I fun. Know, they're <laughs> terrible. But it's such a good way to learn how to, you know, interact with people. And, like, I, I have friends who are teachers, and, They'll admit, they're like, oh, I hate doing group work. I, I try to avoid it. And I'm like, but and they avoid it because it always causes conflict, right? Like, there's always right. drama. Um, but I'm like, you got to 
learn how to teach kids that. And even when it's rough and even when, even as a teacher, when you struggle with it, it's just so important to have those activities um, in the classroom. But yeah, like I also do activities, like there's a great one with partners um, called mirroring, which is very basic, like follow the leader. So you're with a partner, there's no touch involved, which I think is, that's another thing I'm very um, aware of is when I do use touch being very, cautious Mm -hmm. and talking like asking students before I fix their foot or their you know if I need to fix their arm I ask them if I can have permission to touch just because don't know what someone's trauma is and don't know what has happened to them and I do not want to trigger them by touching them without asking but this activity the kids face each other they're in pairs and they just follow without talking it's nonverbal. they don't touch um and then you can build onto it where they join you know, another group and there's four of them and there's one leader and they all have to fight. So it's just like a a simple activity, but it allows learning how to work together, how to, without talking, which is also sometimes hard for people um, Mm -hmm. and without touch. So it's safe. It's like a safe way to do that. So yeah, those are just some ways that I try to integrate some of that research, right? Like how do you create classrooms that are safe for child. And in education, this is a big thing there, you know, especially in the last couple of years, they've talked a lot about like, you may have heard the terms like trauma informed schools right, or trauma sensitive schools. So there's a lot of trainings that teachers are going Good. to, which That's is really exciting. Really like, important. Like, yes. Mm, so especially after, especially with like the equity thing that you were talking about, if, if everyone is treated the exact same way, mm-hmm when and and trauma behind behavior is not addressed Mm -hmm. there's probably a lot of inequity happening in a lot of places well and i remember i had a colleague once say we had like one of these trainings at our school and she was frustrated she was like but you don't know which students have had trauma or not so how do you know how to address it and i was like that's why you just implement these strategies right and you just kind of treat like what you're saying like you treat everyone the same because you don't know their story Mm -hmm. and the therapist at the school might not even know their story. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. there might be something that's undiagnosed and is going undercover. And that's why you implement these strategies and you just, yeah, treat everyone the same because you, yeah, you don't know. Yeah. And it's a, it's a part of integrated, like you said, into the education. Mm-hmm. So as we're wrapping up on time, I have this like, uh, like a burst of vision in my brain. So one of the reasons why I'm interviewing artists, on a podcast that is mostly addressing abuse in the church is I see artistry as a way to move forward. I believe that artists are looking ahead and seeing 10 years down the road where we could be. I feel like artists are naming the present accurately. And I'm always looking for ways to like incorporate art into the work of Tears of Eden and how do we do that? And um, and so I guess I'm like curious what you would say as far as like, like, how could we integrate this into the Tears of Eden community? How could I, movement dance be a part of, because we, I mean, most of the people we work with, not most of them, all of the people we work with have experienced trauma. And mm-hmm. I'm always looking for ways to like incorporate art into what we're doing. Um, and so, yeah, do you have any ideas for how we could potentially incorporate dance into this work and into this field? I mean, 
I think it'd be really cool to do a workshop for people who are open to trying like movement. Um, could you do it online? Is that something that could be done online? You could. I feel like it would be hard, but I think therapists are learning how to work online. And I mean, I, as a teacher too, right? Like we've learned how to do it over the last year. So I feel like you probably could. Are your participants pretty like spread out? Yeah. 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 But yeah, you could do it because I could picture like a storytelling thing um, through choreography and like, yeah, that could be. Oh, that's so cool. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of like, I mean, I'm thinking of a project I did a few years ago where the students had to journal. This was middle schoolers and they had to journal like an I am statement. Yes. Of what they believed about themselves and then an I am statement of what they wished for in the future. So like if they felt like a victim or they felt depressed or whatever, they could write that. But then what do you wish for in the future? And from just like that simple reflection, we like built a dance and it was a whole process, but um, so it was really amazing. Cool. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Well, giving, the- giving hope for the future. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds awesome. And I think I want to, and I'm sad that I never had you come and do something like this for the youth group when I was a youth director, because this would have been really cool, but it also would have probably been difficult for the reasons that we discussed earlier to get like dance (laughs) approved. But that just, that just shows a serious blind spot in the church and culture at large, but definitely in the church. So I'm really glad that you're doing what you're doing and I want to keep you on, on a, on hold for potentially, yeah, doing something like that in the future with the community. Um, that would that. be really, really cool. I would absolutely mm-hmm. love that. Yeah. If there's any way to like incorporate arts into, into what we're doing. Yeah. I just think that Cause I, be... I really truly think that, you know, when we talk about the church and dance, I think Jesus would have been all about this. Like, oh yeah. He would be like, first of all, he'd be at your dance party. Oh, for and then sure. Second of all, <laughs> I think he would be all about this idea of using movement and dance to heal and to, help people process their trauma and to like redeem, like, right. Like redeem brokenness. Oh, so yes. good. So He'd good. Be so into it. I love that. Well, thank you so much. This was so informative. I love this so much. I got so excited. I felt all the feels when hey. you were talking about with the kids in Uganda, like so cool. Um, thank you. Yes. And I'm really glad you're doing the work, the work you're doing. So oh, thank, thank you. you. And me too. Like the work you're doing is awesome. I really have been listening to all these podcasts and, it's been great. Like, uh, so many, I'll be, like, on a run, and I'm, like, yes. And someone, like, <laughs> runs past me, and they're, like, okay. <laughs> oh, Kim. Oh, Kim. Did you listen to the Beth Allison Barr one yet? Yes. I need to read that book. Oh, my gosh. You definitely need to read that book. Mm-hmm. It put into words what I had already been kind of feeling yes. about that complementarianism. Was... Yes. Yeah, it gave me the language. I had already decided I don't think it's healthy and I don't think it's good, but then it just gave me the language to be able to articulate why. That was a fun conversation, for sure. That was really helpful. Uh, well, thanks for having me on. It was fun. Thanks for being here. I love talking about this stuff. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider making a donation by visiting tearsofeden.org support. All donations are tax deductible. 
Intro music featured in this episode is from the band Green Ashes. Before you go, please take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review, and don't forget to share this podcast show with everyone you know. I'm Catherine Spearing, and I'll see you next time. (laughs) 